0: Um, I was listening to a sermon on this passage this week as I was preparing. and uh, trying to work out how to teach it. Uh, I was listening to Andy Robinson. Some of you uh, know Andy quite well. Uh, Andy's done some of our training, um, spoken uh, before with us. Uh, Andy, if you know him, he's not massively prone to hyperbole. Uh, but on this passage, he said this. He said, this passage in Romans 6 is vital for us to grasp. If we don't get Romans 6, then we probably can't really say we've grasped what it means to be a Christian. If we don't get Romans 6, we haven't really grasped what it means to be a Christian. Um, I think I agree with Andy. I think it's a really important key passage we're looking at. We're going to look at it over three weeks, Romans 6, the whole of Romans 6 in three weeks. And so we're going to need God's help. Um, I'm going to pray in a minute. We're going to be thinking about what it means. You, You read that term, what it means that we have union with Christ. Uh, and the promise for us, if we grasp this, if we get this today, is great. Uh, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, there is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. There's no joy in the world like union with Christ. It's a, it's a high promise as we start our time together. Uh, but I trust God by his word through his spirit uh, is going to help us. Let me pray. We need God's help. I need God's help. You need it. Uh, let's pray we might grasp this wonderful truth. Father God, we thank you for all of your word. All of it is useful. It uh, trains us in righteousness. It encourages us. It uh, rebukes us. It challenges us. Lord, we pray we do all those things today. We pray you'd help us to really grasp what you're saying to us here in Romans six—a really important passage, uh, as all of your word is. Lord, help us to grasp these, these key concepts, uh, so that it might change us. It might cause us to love you, delight in you more and more, uh, and then change how we how we live and act in response to that. Amen. So uh, if you are here last week, Paul ended last week. If you just flick back, if you're in your journals in the Red Bibles, you may not need to flick back. He ended 5 verse 21. Uh, he'd been speaking about how uh, previously we had reigned through the sin of Adam. That's, that's who we were. Uh, but now by grace we can reign through Christ. He says this, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ. Our Lord, Kind of the end of Romans 1 to 5. And uh, basically the natural logical question, if we've understood Romans 1 to 5, is verse 1 of our passage. If you've had that question at all in the book of Romans, you've kind of got Paul's logic. And the question is this. He says, what should we say then in response to Romans 1 to 5? What should we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If you got that question, if you've had that in your mind, well done. You've understood where Paul's logic is going in Romans. Uh, And and maybe as you've been listening in uh, the last few months, you could have been thinking, as you've heard what Paul said, uh, what motivation is there for the Christians to actually change in any way, to live a life which honours God in any way? Or maybe you're probably more inclined, like me, a bit more negatively, when you face temptation, as we do daily, uh, And you think in that moment of temptation, you go, well, it doesn't really matter what I do here. I can do what I like because Paul's made it clear. I've got forgiveness sorted. Just needs to trust in Christ. Lang's made that clear. Maybe that's more like you, which is more like me. If I sin, then there's just going to be more forgiveness. So I'll just live how I like. As Paul say, it's very polite. Verse two, by no means. (laughs) It's far more forceful than that. No way. What on earth are you doing? You're joking. How on earth could you think that? By no means shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase. If you think you'll just live as you did before as a Christian, having got Romans 1 to 5, having come into Christ as we're going to look at, if you think there's no hope for change, you've got it all wrong. In, instead, what we're going to see is this passage tells us we need to fundamentally think differently about who we are. We need a new definition of our identity. As Andy said, if we don't get Romans 6, then we haven't really grasped what it means to be a Christian. And I'm in such danger of forgetting this, what we're going to look at. I understand my status has been changed. We looked at a few weeks ago. I've been justified, declared innocent, not guilty. My sins have been forgiven. And I stop there. I go, that's what it means to be a Christian. My sins have been forgiven. And I just move on from there and just crack on but but no if we're a christian if we follow jesus then we're, we're promised our whole identity our whole nature our whole reality has totally changed and the way paul talks about this is by talking about our union with christ throughout this passage he uses terms like in christ or with christ verse three we're told we're baptized into christ into his death buried with him Verse five, we've been united with him. Verse eight, we died with Christ. That's kind of the concept he's talking about. Because if we just focus on having our our status changed, if we only think that on the cross, uh, forgiveness has been achieved for us, if we think that uh, Jesus is just in heaven now and we're on earth and and maybe we'll try and live for him because we're grateful for his death securing our forgiveness. If that's kind of where we remain, Uh, There's no actual vision for change. There's no vision for for a life of freedom and joy, really, for becoming more like Christ. And so I think a great definition of what does it mean to be a Christian is it means we've been united with Christ. And I get this is odd and it's hard to grasp, but but it's key that we do. And so we're going to work hard in this passage to do so. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wonderfully (laughs) said, I'm going to say this twice, because I think it's key we get it. Luther said this, I should never think of Jesus and me as two separate people. We are completely locked together if I've trusted in Christ. I should never think of Jesus and me as two separate people. We are completely locked together. I don't know if you saw the story, I think it was on BBC News last week, of the two conjoined twins, age, I think they're about 25, completely conjoined lives. Just fascinating but bizarre at the same time. Maybe it's an image which helps, completely united, or the, the picture of a, a woman pregnant with child, the life of one completely linked to the life of the other. And if we grasp this, this union with Christ, Paul says uh, we can never go with the logic, which we asked the question in 6 verse 1, that we can just live how we want. We can never go, our lives won't change when we trust in Jesus. And the main image Paul uses, those images might, but the main image he uses is the image of baptism. And so we will as well. It's worth knowing as well, when he uses the image of baptism, when Paul was writing the practice of baptism, which in some ways we moved on from, for better maybe or for worse, was that as soon as someone became a Christian, they were baptised. Conversion and baptism were directly linked. And so he uses this image. When he's talking about baptism, he's, he's talking about that moment of conversion. And firstly, we're going to see Paul calls us to know something before he calls us to act. It's the same logic and flow Paul so often uses. It's for gospel logic. We need to know before we act. We need to change our thinking and then that flows into our behaviour. Change what we, what we worship will affect how we act. I um, studied a language, uh, stupidly, at university and I quickly realised as I was studying a language that I did not understand anything about grammar. Uh, I did not really understand how languages worked. Turns out they don't really teach English in the same way they teach other foreign languages. You just kind of become fluent in English. But I knew nothing about grammar. Um, I was standing in a lecture one and they were talking to me about the gerund. Anyone know what the gerund is? Great, yeah. I, I, don't, I, st- I don't really still know what the gerund is. I-N-G, I think. Really? Yeah, getting a nod. I-N-G. No idea what it means. I don't really know much about grammar. But to understand the gospel, it's important we understand some gospel grammar. Here we go. Two big words. Indicatives what God has done, always come before imperatives, what we are to do. And if we've been in Romans for the first of our chapters, which we have been, you'll have recognised this is what Paul is doing. Indicatives come before imperatives. Before we're going to think about what we are to do, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember what God has done. Our faithfulness will always flow from our grace. And it's really interesting. I didn't know this when I was reading it. Here in Romans 6, we actually get to the first imperatives in Romans. If you were to read Romans 1 to 11, maybe it's a challenge for you later. 1 to 11, there are 315 verses. 308 of them, that's 97%, tell us about what God has done or, or describes what we are like. Only then does Paul begin to speak about how we are to respond. Our obedience, we're going to look at it a little bit, our life change can only come out of a rich understanding of God's gracious acts on our behalf. It's fascinating, 97%. He's hammering in what God has done. He's reminding us again and again what God is like. And I know I get this wrong so often. I I turn my gospel grammar on its head. I forget and I I live as if my justification is by grace. But the Christian life now is then a a form of self-help. I occasionally help some uh, Syrian refugees with their English. Uh, they help me with my Arabic. And, and regularly we need to correct each other's grammar. We get it wrong all the time. And so today the challenge is we'll let Paul do the same. We, we need the roots of grace to be deep in order for the fruit uh, to work out in our lives. So we're going to look at three things. Firstly, uh, we need to know we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. It's the indicative first, or we get to the imperative. Look at it with me. You are dead to sin. I'm not quite sure when I died. It was sometime between 1995 and 2005, I think, that Johnny Reed, the old self, died. It was sometime then that I put my trust in Jesus, that according to Paul's language here, I was buried with Christ. Publicly, my baptism marked it when I was 17 in a very cold swimming pool. My dad and my pastor, they dunked me under this freezing water, symbolising my old life was dead. You can't die more than once, can you? Death is a, is a fundamental shift in reality. And sadly, it's really true when you know someone who dies. It, it's irreparable. It's irreversible. Really sadly, I just heard this week, my, my brother-in-law's father is on his deathbed. Really suddenly. I heard yesterday, we had no idea. And it's, it's shocking. It's, it's irreparable. It's irreversible. And when you die, you no longer live as you once did, do you? It just makes sense. You're dead. You no longer live as you once did. And so friends, if you follow Jesus here today, there is a moment in your life when you died. Verse three. You know that all of us who were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death. We were therefore buried with him, through baptism into death. He's using the picture of baptism to explain this. Here, A few weeks ago, we had to baptism. Here's uh, Josh. There's Josh on screen. Hey, mate. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit of Sky Sports Monday Night Football analysis here on what was going on at Josh's baptism. Uh, Now, remember, as I said, in the early church, conversion was normally directly followed by baptism. As I said for myself, I'm not 100% sure when I put my trust in Christ, but I know it was marked by my baptism at 17. Getting baptised did not make me a Christian. It represented visibly what had already happened spiritually, what God had already done. Same here for Josh. If you remember his story, he put his trust in Christ a number of years ago, and then in obedience to God on Easter Sunday, he made that reality visible. So uh, let me pause the video. We're going to go through. Here's Josh. He's going down. There he is. He's fully under, just about. And that... (laughs) is what, according to Paul, Josh would have been thinking. That's what we were to be thinking as we watched. Josh has died. He has died with Christ. He has died to his old way of life. So if you've been baptised already here today, this is a really good time to remember this. You are dead to your old life. Why? Because Christ has defeated sin. So in answer to verse one, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Well, how can we keep living as if we were? Because we're dead. This status change happens to all who trust in Jesus, regardless of how we feel. You may not feel particularly dead to your old way of life today. Uh, and it's important to say um, it is regardless of how we feel. We live in a culture of, of sort of expressive individualism where it's all about what we feel. We're defined by how we feel. Well, That's wrong. Our feelings change all the time. You might not feel particularly dead to sin right now, but that's not the point. It's it's perfectly possible, isn't it, for something to be true about you without knowing it or feeling it. Right, your flies are undone. It's perfectly true. Possibly, I don't think mine are, but, but you don't necessarily know it or feel it. Your, your brake light doesn't work. I had a panic the other day. I was getting flashed by a car. I have no idea why. I still, my brake light's fine. Or more positively, maybe a large sum of money is deposited into your bank account. You have no idea until you look at your bank account. Blissfully unaware. It's possible to know something is true without it actually, actually feeling it necessarily. And in Romans 6, Paul is pointing out from the moment we believed in Jesus, we're united to him in his death. We have died to sin, whether we realised it or not. verse 6 shows us why this happened. We know that our old self was crucified with him. So that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who died has been set free from sin. We saw last week, sin was our master. We saw how as those in the line of Adam, we were slaves to sin. we were born into slavery. It's quite striking to think that probably only two or three generations ago, particularly in America, somebody could say I was born into slavery. It's the Lord, but it's not reality now. We are born into slavery. We were, as sinful, we were born into slavery. And if a slave died, well, he's no longer a slave to his master, is he? He's dead. It's just logic. In South Korea, um, you may know this, all men have to do military service before the age of 30. We often hear about it in the news when um, famous people have to do it. So there's a famous pop band. I can't remember what they're called. Anyone know what they're called. It's a really famous. BTS. BTS. There we go. South Korean <laughs> pop. BTS. It's been in the news. Are they going to have to do the military service? The answer is yes. Uh, Song Moon King, uh, the uh, South Korean player, fortunately he won an Olympic gold medal. He didn't have to do it. But generally, if you are South Korean, you have to do military service before the age of 30. But if a South Korean uh, met criteria in a country to change their citizenship to become a national from another country, they wouldn't legitimately be able to go, I'm not coming. I'm not going to do the military service. They're no longer a citizen. They're no longer under control of their own country. There's the other image going on here. Kind of this death and there's kind of a change of citizenship. We no longer live in the country of sin. It's another way of looking. We no longer live in that place. Sin is not done. It still exists. It's not yet destroyed and yet we're no longer a citizen under its reign and its dominion so if it comes calling we can go no that is no longer who i am as the message translation puts from these verses our old way of life was nailed to the cross with christ a decisive end to that sin miserable life no longer captive to sin's demands the first thing we need to know is we're dead to sin the second thing we need to know is we're alive and raised from the dead Verse 4, just as Christ raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may have a new life. Verse 5, if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Christ. We have been raised as well in our union. Why? So we might have new life, not just a, a new life in the future. Not just a new life and a new creation, although that is true, but also a new life now. Verse 4 tells us this. Why were we raised? So we may have a new life. Let's go back to Sky Sports. Here's Josh again. Josh is under the water. If he had stayed there, we would have had a criminal investigation on our hands. But he did not stay there. As he comes out of the water, here we go, here comes Josh. What's he thinking? Big smile on his face. He's thinking this I'm alive. I'm new. He actually told me he was thinking my knees really hurt, Um, but that's what hopefully he was eventually thinking. What's one of the best ways to describe the Christian life now? As I said at the start, it's living out our union with Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, somebody dead to sin and alive to Christ. If we just stop with being forgiven of our sins, is what it means to be a Christian. We're really missing out. The story of Christianity is so much greater than that. It's a radical new life. So again, back to verse one, shall we go on sinning? No, it just doesn't fit. A person who continues to to live in sin, thinking that's the way to go, is like a right-handed person writing with their left hand. It's not natural. It's weird. It's incompatible with who we are because we have a new life with Christ. That's what we need to know today from Romans 6. We're dead to sin, alive in Christ. And baptism is a wonderful picture of it. So now uh, we know we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. But we need to, as Paul says in verse 11, keep reminding ourselves we're dead to sin, alive in Christ. We're forgetful people. We need to keep reminding ourselves. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves. In some translations, it's reckon. Reckon yourselves, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Remember, keep remembering. This is the first command, I'm pretty sure, in the whole of Romans. First command is this. Don't make yourselves, not to, we can't make ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. We can't do that. Josh could not baptise himself. He would have just been a man going for a swim in a hot tub. We are commanded to keep remembering our identity, though. Count yourself, remind yourself. And the challenge from Paul is that we would daily remember this. As I said earlier, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you've been baptised, and if you've in Jesus and you've not been baptised, please speak with me today. Think back to that moment now. Get it in your head. It's a wonderful gift from God to keep remembering that. We don't keep rebaptizing ourselves. We remember that as a, as a mark of what happens. As I said, of a visible mark of an internal reality. Throughout history, God has given His people reminders to help them remember the gospel, to help them form an identity. Communion, which we'll celebrate later, is one of these. Our baptisms are another. You know, we see it in culture how remembering leads to identity formation. It's why schools in America regularly uh, reenact the Gettysburg Address. It's why at Christmas we do nativity plays in one way. We're reenacting. The coronation next week is going to be littered with history and tradition. The Passover meal reminded the Jews of the Exodus. Jews still do it today. They've done it for millennia. And baptism does the same. Our baptism brings the past events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection into the present. We're physically reenacting the story, buried under the water before rising out again of the water to new life. So, if you got it in your head when you're baptized, if you got that. Remember this. Keep coming back to your baptism. Keep remembering the identity change that had happened, which that symbolised. And it's so important, I think, as we face temptation each day, we need to be a people who think clearly as we do. As we face temptation, as we hear the devil's voice tempting us to sin in a certain way, we can clearly remember who we are and fight sin as we do. It's important we think clearly. Because we're no longer the same people, we're different people. If we've been baptised, it's as if we're having a, a, a different name. Baptism is like a spiritual naming ceremony. We respond to our name, doesn't it? It makes up part of our identity. It uh, tells people normally where we're from, what family we're part of. About six months before town church began, I had a phone call from a friend. Uh, they said there was a man in a nursing home in Bicester who had recently moved. He wanted to come to our church. They told me his name was John King, asked if I'd go and meet him. I did, no idea who this man was, but I was shocked because I found it was someone I actually knew. I'd known him a few years before. He was a man called Ibrahim Khan, a Muslim man originally from Pakistan. I was confused. I think within about two minutes, I just asked him the question. I said, Ibra, I used to call him Ibra. Why did they tell me your name was John King? Well, it doesn't make any sense. Your name's Ibrahim Khan. You know what he said? He said, Johnny, when I was baptised, I chose a new name. John was one of Jesus' key disciples, one of his best friends. And I came to faith reading the book of John. King is an English translation of Khan. Reminds me of a new person. I'm no longer part of my old family. And he gets really unhappy. Really unhappy whenever a doctor or a nurse kept calling him by his old name. We struggled to get it officially changed. It took years But that was no longer who he was. He wasn't Ibrahim Khan. He's John King. And Paul is saying here, Christians, do you know your real name? Do you know what it means to be in Christ? Do you know what it means to be renamed in Christ? Do you know that you have a new identity? Remember your name, Christians. Remember your new identity. You're dead and you're alive. And there is one way of thinking. It's very important we get our identity right. Because there's one main way of thinking, I think, which can harm us in our Christian lives. I think it's a challenge. A challenge for me when I was thinking about this. I think it's to think of ourselves primarily as miserable sinners. To think that's our primary identity. My primary identity is I'm a sinner. We get our name wrong. Now, of course, we've seen Romans 2 and 3 particularly. On one level, this is so true. We're not able on our own to live for God. We do still fall into sin. I'm not preaching perfectionism here in any way, shape or form. But do you know what word Paul uses to describe us 40 times in the Old Testament? It's not sinner. It's saint. I think only once does he refer to us directly as sinners. If you're in Christ, you're now defined as a saint, one who is set apart, one who is holy, not because of what we do. Not in any way, shape or form because of what we do, but because of who we are now in Christ. Because of course you cannot baptise yourself. If we think of ourselves primarily as miserable sinners, we're ultimately faithlessly denying Christ's work in us. We're denying that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. And it changes how we live, doesn't it? Because if we think of ourselves primarily as miserable sinners, we'll act like miserable sinners, If that's the way I think, then that's the way I'll live. But if temptation comes and it will come, and it will come this week and it will come today, to not honour Christ. And if we preach verse 11 to ourselves, if we say, no, I am dead to sin. It is no longer my master. Sin does not have power over me anymore. I'm dead to it. Instead, I'm alive to God in Christ. There is power there to change. My testimony this week, as I was reading this, I was challenged on this. I've tried every time Tentatia's knocked on my door to remind myself I'm dead to sin. I'm alive in Christ. Hasn't always worked. I've messed up. But it's helped to keep reminding myself of my identity. Keep reminding yourself you're dead to sin. You're alive in Christ. You're new. And finally, finally, we get here to the imperative. Now Live as if you are dead to sin and alive in Christ. This is verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law, but under grace. That's the flow from Paul here, he's explaining. We need to know it, remember it, and now we live it. We, we need to be a people who pursue holiness, who live out our new identities as God's people, who reflect his character, who live out the life he calls us to, which is the best way for us to live. If we do this, if we, if we live as new people, if we live out our identities, it will affect the whole of us. It'll affect how we speak, it'll affect how we think and what we do. The promise of the Christian life. And if you're struggling in sin, the sin which cripples you, the one which you can't shake, the habit that does, does your head in, the pattern of thinking you can't seem to get rid of. Negative spirals. The promise of the Christian life is that by the spirit there is a chance for change and a new life. The promise is that for those, as it says here in verse 14, under grace. You can change. Not you can change, but you will change. R. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. It's blunt and it's challenging, it's direct. I think it's true. It's impossible to live unchanged when you become a Christian. If people argue in this way, back to 6 verse 1, they're not under grace. They're not Christians. If your life has not changed, if there's no impulse for further change towards Christ... You're probably not a Christian. It's impossible to live unchanged and become a Christian. At On one hand, that's a really stinging rebuke, potentially. At the other hand, that's a wonderful encouragement. Hopefully, for the majority of the room, it's a wonderful encouragement. Paul is saying that the power to change. The power to live here does not come from the Lord, does not come from commands, verse 14. We're not under law. It instead comes from the grace of Jesus, who dies for us, who invites us into a union with him. A union where he'll change us. Where he'll make us more like him, which is how we were made to be so we can flourish. It's for coronation next week, isn't it? We'll officially move from the reign of Elizabeth to the reign of Charles. For the Christian, when they trust in Jesus, the reign of sin is gone, it's defeated. The reign of grace is what is over us now. We've been buried and we've raised. Remember the baptism picture. And we're not forgiven so we can just now do what we like. We're forgiven and brought into a union with him forever. Remember Spurgeon at the start, there is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are. I'm sure I have poorly explained the union of Christ and I'm sure we, we need such help to grasp this. I know I do. What a promise that is. And it's true. There's no joy in the world like union of Christ. It describes our fundamental shift in our reality of our trust in Jesus. The more we feel it, the more we remember it, the more we know it, the more we remind ourselves and preach it to ourselves. The more we preach to one another as we encourage one another, as we sit under God's word each week and remind ourselves of it, the happier we are. Who doesn't want to be happy? God does. God wants us to be. If you don't trust in Jesus today, I can honestly say that you're missing out. Come to Jesus. Trust in him and be free. You can do that today. Please speak to someone around you today. Speak to me if that's you and you haven't done it today. Don't miss out. And if you do follow Jesus and remember your new identity and let it cause you to rejoice and delight And transform you now and into eternity. I'm going to pray. So please pray with me. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Lord, we need your help to remember this, to apply it, to understand it. But We praise you for every word of your word. How it speaks to us of who you are, who we are and who we can be in you. Lord, may we be a people who grasp this more and more. May it change uh, how we live and who we are and how we think. And may it cause us to just give you great praise and delight in you and the wonderful good gifts you give us. Lord, we need your help. Keep helping us to remember our, our union with you, our identity with you. To remember that we are dead to sin. As temptation knocks on the door this week, may we be a people who declare, No, I am dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. We need your help, Lord, by your spirit. So do that, we pray. Amen. Now, we're about to celebrate communion together. Um, we're going to sing before we do that. Uh, but communion is another gift from God to help us remember. Just as singing is a wonderful gift to help us sing about our new identity. But before we sing, I just want us to think a little bit. it only be a minute or two, Joe, so you're fine. You can stand up.